You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I live in Capitals Capital, but I root against the Dow. I feel an instinctive lizard thrill on those days when it collapses. I know I'm meant to feel we're all in something together, especially after the gray fog stretched out to cover the lower reaches of the island. I ought to feel sympathy for the money men, ashen and dim in aspect, forgetful, sleepy, never quite themselves anymore. Yet if I'm honest with myself, I'd like to see them stripped even of their fog-gray suits, reduced to suspenders and barrels, put out of their misery at last. Sometimes this Tao enmity of mine seems like the worst secret I could disclose. I don't. Though I do dwell among the money people, that's incidental to what I like about the Upper East Side, and to the matter of why I rarely go anywhere else. The secret of this place is its quarantine from the boom and bust of Manhattan's trends and fashions. Maybe someday, if the rumors are true, they'll build a Second Avenue subway line, and all of this will change. For now, What's here is entrenched and immutable. The shopping cart ladies and the fur ladies and the black cocktail dress girls, the praying, tie-loosened 23-year-old junior partners, the reverse-slumming off-duty policemen. None has to glance at the others and wonder whether this place rightly belongs to them or anyone. The resonances and layers here are mysterious without being unduly impressed with themselves. Money has been here so long, it's a little decrepit. If one of money's laws is that it can never buy taste, here is where it went after it failed, and here is what it bought instead. Much hides behind what's assumed about the east side, even if what's assumed is true. There are things beyond what's assumed and true. Jonathan Latham won the National Book Critics Circle Award for his novel Motherless Brooklyn. He's the author of The Fortress of Solitude, Men in Cartoons, and You Don't Love Me Yet. His new novel is Chronic City. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> you are a narrator at the beginning of this book. Uh, his name is Chase Instedman, <laughs> a wonderful name. Uh, he says, I lived too much on the surface of things. I, I like this this observation of his, the character makes of himself. Well, yeah, I was very th- interested in general with ideas of depth and surface. I think New York City is a place with uh, a really complicated surface and really, really mysterious depths. And and I wanted, if I could, to get both into the book. Uh, I love the the aspect of this book. The, this vision of New York as being just a series of worlds within worlds, and you develop this in a variety of fashions throughout the book. Talk about, um, at, on the surface, this is kind of the, uh, you might describe this as a almost a, a like Bertie Wooster. Right. <laughs> Your main character <laughs> brings up Woodhouse at one point, and, and I thought, boy, he's like Bertie Wooster in 21st century New York. Yeah, yeah well, he's a kind of... Um, Charmed innocent, who uh, he was a child star, and he's coasting on his his uh, manners and good looks, and you know people find him um, uh, wonderfully harmless, so they like to have him around. As a as a character and a narrator, he takes us into a kind of unusual group of people, and one thing I wanted to talk to you about 
are the names you choose for these people? It's they're <laughs> they're very odd and kind of Dickensian in a manner. Could you talk about just creating these people? Did you create the names and then create the people around the names? Well, I always build the characters and the names together. And and until I have a name, I don't quite see the person in focus. So uh, when I'm when I'm working on on understanding the characters that I want to you know put on the page. Uh, I need to I need to find that name, and it needs to be vivid enough that 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 it's exciting. You know, when I was growing up as a reader, I always had trouble remembering boring names in books and characters' names, even in books I liked. And so I was appreciated Dickens and and other writers like Pynchon, who gave you something very you know vivid and and peculiar to hold on to. So I kind of promised that I'd reciprocate by by offering up strange ones myself. But you know, I I think. People underestimate how weird real names are. You know, they take them for granted because they are real. But a lot of people have names that, if you put them into books, uh, you know, it raised the same question. Now, uh, I have to ask: when you started writing this book, you presumably had Chase and Stedman in 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 mind. Um, how soon? How long did it take you to to encounter the rest of this cast in this book? And how did you do that as a writer? Well, actually, the the other main character in this book, I mean, it is kind of a, an ensemble um, story. But but there there's Chase, the narrator, and then there's Perkis Tooth, and he came first. I was living with him as an idea, as an impulse uh, for a character long before I had any sense of what container could hold him. Um, he, he interested me and kind of called to me and was, I guess, a character in search of an author for a while. And um, it was uh, years after I'd begun to have this inkling about, about Perkis, who's the kind of careening, uh, paranoid, um, you know, uh, marginal cultural critic character, that I suddenly, in a, in a kind of a flash, had this image of a book about Manhattan, about wealth and glamour, but also the kind of bohemian underside uh, that, that exists right, along, right, right alongside all that uh, wealth and glamour. And Chase came with that uh, notion of writing a book about um, sort of callow, callow mildly famous uh, people on the Upper East Side. And, and Perkis is the, you know, he's the antidote. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what the disease is, but... <laughs> But it's chronic, whatever it is. <laughs> it's very chronic. Uh, one of the things that Perkis is noted for is are the broadsides he put up in in his feckless youth, and and I was thinking of a particular artist in Los Angeles who put up a series of uh, posters that were really quite striking. They weren't words, but I, I'm wondering, was that was he the inspiration? Which do you, do you remember his name? I don't remember his name. He put up these absolutely striking images, yeah. and they came well, up— Well, I'm not sure who you mean, but I, I will say that I've always been compelled by all sorts of art interventions, public art interventions, from graffiti, which I wrote about very extensively in a book called The Fortress of Solitude. Mm-hmm. Um, to you know, Larry Sultan and Mike Mandel's billboard transformations, which were mostly done in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, you know, now what twenty twenty odd years ago, maybe maybe even more, um, and uh, I also had a friend who was a kind of music critic. Uh, he wrote under the name Camden Joy, and he was briefly uh, famous in New York City for putting up these kind of instantaneous um, music. 
critical posters. And so that was one of the elements that, that influenced this, this idea of, of uh, Perkis Tooth's broadsides. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about this interventionist art because it kind of comes up all over the, this novel in a variety of fashions, some of them quite alarming. Uh, I love your, your uh, character. Um, now, I'm trying to remember what he's... What is, oh, yes, Deepster McCole in the ground. Uh, Laird, Laird Noteless, the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's kind of a, a, a combination of um, someone like Richard Serra, who, you know, in fact, did build some art in New York City, um, a, a piece called Tilted Arc that was taken b- by people as very ominous and destructive. It seemed to ruin public space. And, you know, there were people who had a nice little courtyard between two two, uh, two office buildings and they'd gone there for coffee and sandwiches and now Tilted Arc had come and destroyed their their lunchtime. Um, so that, that image was very amusing and, and disturbing to me in a way, the idea that... Um, you know, in, in order for art to find any uh, relevance, it had to, it had to sort of become like a, um, you know, an a, a act of destruction in, in in New York City. And then I was also thinking of Robert Smithson, who who went out west and built, you know, artificial uh, islands and mountains and things. And so I thought, what if a what if an earthworks artist were set loose in New York City and and make making these giant holes in the ground, you know, as a kind of attempt to to provide some kind of relevant public statement. <laughs> One of the things that I, I like uh, uh, about this novel is y- you said that uh, the the character uh, Chase, you described him as kind of leaving, leading a charmed life, but he, he's very charming. The whole, all your prose and your approach in this novel is, although sometimes we, we come upon things that are somewhat frightening, I think the whole effect of this novel is very charming and, and uh, gregarious and, and friendly. Could you talk about creating a kind of a friendly novel? <laughs> well, I, I like that you, you describe it that way. I mean, I do believe that uh, Chase's, Chase's essence is that he wants to please, and so I guess that's what's coming across. And he's, he's an apologist. He wants, he wants it to be okay between his crazy friends and... and, and and he wants it to be okay between himself and and the impossible city he's living in. So he's always trying to paper over the cracks, in a way. It's it it is, I guess, yeah, kind of an embracing, um, uh, and and well mannered narrator for for a novel that's so full of chaos and and destruction. Well, now this novel is called Chronic City, <clears throat> and when I first looked at it, I thought, well, that's almost like the word synchronicity. And, and and only there's no sin in your your city is yeah. just chronicity and where and <laughs> suggested to me that it's a novel and a city where everything is happening at once all the time and this novel captures that well I like that description a lot and and I like the the glimmer of that pun that that you've discovered in the title I mean the word chronic became very interesting to me because it seemed to say a bunch of things at once it's it's obviously illness. Mm-hmm. And incur diagnosable but incurable illness, uh, but it also has this, you know, notion of time embedded in it. It's, it's, it's something that's stuck in time or repeating in time. And I was pursuing an image of New York City as uh, growing increasingly detached or solipsistic, becoming a kind of um, self-referential playground. And so that seemed like a chronic condition to me, uh, precisely because it. You know, um, 
is moving away from any meaningful history or progress. It's really interesting the way that you develop this idea of worlds within worlds, and those worlds start to splinter. And you have some really great examples just within the architecture. The that's the Woodrow's apartment is talk about the Woodrow's apartment as an example. Is that a real thing? Well, it? it is real. Like a a lot of probably the most peculiar things in this book, like the the thousand dollar omelet and the uh, the mysterious chocolate smell that floats over the island of Manhattan. Uh, it's absolutely real. It's it's me reporting something that is sort of too too strange to be true, but but there it is, uh, a, a fact of 21st century Manhattan. I've I've visited uh, buildings where um, you know elite apartment buildings on Park Avenue or Madison or Fifth Avenue, where the very most uh, desirable apartment within the building is quite a lot like a row house tucked inside the lobby and push to one side so that it's, you know, uh, exclusive even within the space of the building. And each of these characters is building individual worlds within themselves and and for themselves. There's just a a myriad of examples. Um, You talk about, and one of the things you you create in there is the hidden... uh, hidden world that I think a lot of people are familiar with, maybe don't think of it that way, is eBay bidding. Right. There's a lot of eBay yeah. bidding on here. Yeah. You know, I wanted to write about um, virtuality mm-hmm. a little bit. I think it's a really difficult thing to get into fiction in a in a meaningful human way. And I'm very interested in it, but very wary of it. I myself have a lot of resistance. If I, if, if someone told me, oh, this novel will talk about what you know, what computers are doing to everyday life, I'd probably think, I don't want to read that book. But my my suspicion was that it's infiltrated much more deeply than anyone really bothers to notice. You know, it's very tempting if you're going to talk about um, online life and virtual reality to think about the esoteric possibilities, something like Second Life or, or um, something even more far-fetched, uh, you know, where you put on goggles and you disappear from your physical body. But in fact, the way these changes enter our lives tends to be quite mundane. And eBay is right in front of our noses. It's an it's a imaginary store that we all shop in now, you know, and everyone kind of takes it for granted that they might go there sometimes and bid against, you know, their, their friends or against strangers for these objects. And, uh, you know, they complain about the quality of service and it's it's just uh, taken for granted, and so I, I I thought it was a fascinating way to look at um, virtual reality to point out that we're already kind of half living there. We've got one foot in it uh, without deciding uh, that we wanted to. Uh, one of the things I really liked about this book was the fact that you I, I think you take a, have a really unique means of addressing virtual reality because one of the problems with a lot of virtual reality books is you'll get partway into the book and you'll discover all the the uh, characters are computer cre- creations. At that point, you just want to toss it out. I don't care. I'm shutting down that computer right now. <laughs> yeah. And you manage to embed us in a world that seems familiar to us, but also strange. Like as I was reading this book, I'm one, I was beginning to wonder, I mean, you have the Dorful Tower. Now, I, I what, one of the dangers of reading books like this where characters look things up on the internet is that the readers are going to look things up on the internet. <laughs> yeah. So I looked up, there's no Dorful anything. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted to, you know, in a way I stumbled into this method when I wrote The Fortress of Solitude. 
of writing about culture by using a lot of real facts and a lot of imaginary ones and um, blending them together very, very precisely so that you'd have to Google or use Wikipedia to sort it all out. You know, in that book, I needed to make room for my imaginary soul singer, mm -hmm. uh, who's one of the main characters. So I had to sort of move Marvin Gaye over two inches to one side and <laughs> move the lead singer of The Temptations over uh, in, in the other direction just to open up a little gap in the true history of um, American soul music to, 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 to allow my invented character to dwell there. And the process became fascinating to me. I, I felt there was a lot of fictional... Uh, magic, a lot of energy that was created uh, in that tension between the invented culture and the real culture. So I, in this book, I sort of let that method uh, run hog wild. There, there are tons of references to, you know, real filmmakers like Werner Herzog or, uh, or, or um, you know, um, Peter Bogdanovich, but I'll have them making films that aren't real films. I'll have them, uh, you know, responsible for, for stuff that never existed. And so I, I, I really liked... Um, making a kind of tapestry of cultural references and letting people just wonder or or Google, I guess, about, uh, you know, which ones were true. Uh, I didn't get a chance to Google the uh, Mazursky episode of, of uh, Columbo. <laughs> was there one? No, there wasn't a Mazursky episode of Columbo. But on the other hand, there was an episode of Columbo where uh, John Cassavetes was the villain. Mm -hmm. And he acted in it. And Spielberg, I think, directed one or two episodes. I, that I didn't know, but, oh. you know. There you go. And I'll have to Google to see if you're lying to me. <laughs> now, one thing I, f I remember you didn't lie to us about was the band called Crispy Ambulance. Right. right. <laughs> I was... This was funny. I, I got fact-checked uh, by my – or not fact-checked. I got challenged by my editor who, who, in this book full of quite a lot of preposterous stuff and very strange names for things, uh, he got stuck on one thing. He said, I'm sorry, I cannot really believe – that there would be a band called Crispy Ambulance. And I then revealed to him that that was an example of one of the things I hadn't made up, but that he'd have to accept that because it was his own real world that included it. <laughs> yeah, I think I was one of the four people who bought the 10-inch EP back in 1980. <laughs> Great. Well, this, that was for you then. Uh, that, it, was, yeah. it was such a delight to come across that. And, and I love this uh, the way you did do this remix of Culture... Um, so, uh, tell us a little bit about these two film directors you create and how, how they uh, go back and forth and the way they kind of percolate through the book, in a uh, way. Von Tropen Zollner and Morrison Groom. Those are the two you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. Well, Zollner is a, he's obviously, you know, a German or Hungarian emigre. He's like a Fritz Lang, come to Hollywood and reduced to making B movies, you know, kind of knocked down a few pegs by, by uh, exile from Europe. You know where he probably made some great film like *The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari*, but now he's making like a, a, you know, a B movie crime film with with you know some kind of second rank actor in the '40s like Dan Duryea in the lead, or <laughs> and uh, but of course he's infusing them with all this gothic European darkness, um, and then uh, Morrison Groom is is uh, he's an American and he's much more of like a counterculture hero. He's some. He's something like Monty Hellman or, uh, you know, or, or um, uh, what's the name of the guy who directed uh, Days of Heaven? Terrence Malick, kind of a mysterious hipster director who doesn't finish very many films and, you know, um, you know maybe uh, lets his characters improvise, his, his actors improvise on the set a lot and shoots thousands and thousands of hours and gets the studio very angry at him. And, 
re- refuses to return their calls. Now, there's a character in here who, if Morrissey does not write a song about this character, there's something wrong with him. <laughs> that would be the girlfriend in a space station instead of in a coma. Oh, that's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about well, get, creating Well, get Janice. Morrissey on the phone right now. <laughs> yeah. um, so, yes, Janice Trumbull is um, trapped in space. She's trapped in orbit. Uh, with a bunch of cosmonauts because she she went to do a typical kind of American visit to the Russian space lab. But uh, while she was there, um, there was a space catastrophe, basically, that's keeping keeping uh, uh, Janice and all the all the Russians stuck in, in orbit. So she's become this very tragic figure. And uh, she sends letters back to Earth and people are all reading her letters in the newspaper. And it's kind of a, a sob story. A daily sob story that people are very involved in. I actually, I was thinking partly of a very moving and strange, uh, again, one of these things that if you invented it, it would seem like you'd invented something very preposterous, but a, a real a real event. There was a, a female doctor who went to Antarctica and was uh, there over the long winter, the phase where you can't go in and out because planes can't even arrive at the Antarctic station. And within, a, I guess, a month or so of the, the six or seven months of being stuck up there, down there, in Antarctica, she diagnosed herself because she was the, she was the the MD, um, at the at the uh, South Pole Station, with uh, breast cancer, and it became this public drama. I don't know if you remember this, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, people had to uh, fly air, airlift supplies to her, and she treated herself, gave herself chemotherapy, and it was. Incredibly moving, strange saga, and so that was in some ways the the um, inspiration for my my trapped female astronaut. She sends a series of letters that are really beautifully written, and and uh, it almost struck me that you could just pop those letters out of the novel and sell them off to some science fiction magazine <laughs> as a as a novella. Well, <laughs> the funny thing is, I did pop them out of the novel and 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 sell them off, but. Uh, I went upscale, and they were in the New Yorker instead of uh, Science Fiction magazine. But yeah, they kind of add up to a, a science fiction story squirreled within this uh, this present day book about New York City. So it's another world within the world. That's uh, you. You beat me to it. Now um, we also uh, have a, a couple of a lot of really interesting characters, and I like the dynamic of the friendships that you create here. Um, there's Una Laszlo, and uh, there's Richard Abneg, and his girlfriend, who is Georgina Hakmanaji. So tell us about the, this group of friends <laughs> yeah. and how they come together, and just creating that dynamic, because it seems so real. Well, that's that's great. I'm glad you feel that way. I mean, I was thinking about—I have a, I have for a long time been thinking about how to portray the texture of real friendship, when you fall in with a a gang, in, either in college or in your twenties, and in in some ways, uh, the the short novel I wrote before this book was a dry run. I wrote I wrote a book about a rock band called "You Don't Love Me Yet," that was about what you know the the daily experience of hanging out with your friends and you know people falling in love and breaking up and wrecking the friendship or wrecking the band and you know what it's what it's what it's like. I think it's a difficult thing for narrative to put across because it's chronic instead of uh, sequential. It just doesn't have a narrative shape. It just goes tumbling forward. And, you know, you you, you see people and call them on the phone, and um, there's, no, um, 
there's no progress <laughs> generally <laughs> it's a, it's a it's just a, a a way of life but i wanted to 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 do that in this book and so these guys hang out and you know one of my models in a strange way was um a situation comedy i thought you know e- each of the long chapters where the characters are together should be like an episode of seinfeld where you kind of feel that uh anything can happen to these these four or five people but you know, then at the end of the show, it'll be reset and they'll all be back where they started. Um, and, um, you know, in, in fact, you know, my, my group kind of falls into a, a vaguely Seinfeldian pattern. Uh, the, the three guys and the, and the, and, and Una and, uh, and then Hawk, Hawk Monogy, Georgina is kind of a, a, a fifth wheel. Um, but she, she gets to hang out with them too. Now you create some of the um, the high class situations. There's a there's a, a wonderful party scene in this book. So talk about kind of creating these these scenes and using these characters and using their relationships and, and the way they develop as a as a plot point. That's a that's not an easy plot to 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 wrap your brain around, is it? Well, I mean, it's a, I guess at that level, it's it's a comedy of manners. It's really about characters moving through. A social milieu, and you know, in the past, I've I've done a similar thing or tried to, in the books uh, where I had a, a detective character. Hardboiled detectives are very useful because they cut through class boundaries. They tend to, you know, go to the the dive bar and then, you know, they get back in their car and they drive to the mansion and confront the the corrupt rich people. They they sort of um, float through class, and. In this book, I, I suppose in a way I was having the insight that uh, bohemians can function like detectives. They can go anywhere, um, especially if they're sort of pets. And that's, you know, Chase, as he confesses at the beginning of the book, he's so likable and so uh, affable that people sort of collect him and they want him at dinner parties. And so he becomes um, inadvertently at first a kind of detective or witness, you know, someone who is a fly on the wall in a lot of different situations, including, you know, parties at the mayor's house where all manner of uh, powerful, shifty, you know, dark entities are swirling around and, and, you know, they're in their off hours, so they may be somewhat unguarded. It's a perfect opportunity uh, to, uh, to, to maybe puzzle out what, what makes this, you know, dark, magnificent city operate. Um, because when people are, think they're, they're, they're in their the safety of their their dinner parties. That's when they let their guard down. One of the things about the the world you create in this book is that it's somewhat surreal because there's all these things that seem that that seem and in many cases in fact are real, but you bring them to us in an unusual manner. I'm thinking of the the gray fog that that has descended on on parts of the city and and the the, the chocolate smell which is uh really great and then there's the tiger uh, there are all these kind of things that, that are remind me of you know Charles Fort and and his mm-hmm. these kind of weird events that he would observe so talk about creating you know taking the real world and just tweezing it enough so it seems kind of surreal and yeah well i was I was thinking of a couple of things. I mean, we do live in a kind of surreal future, and we, of course, are forced to take it for granted. It's still ordinary life. And I wanted to capture that doubleness of, you know, reading in the paper about global-scale catastrophes or 
falling space stations or, you know, uh, a couple of years ago in New York, a giant crane that destroyed buildings. And yet you have no option uh, under the shadow of these kind of outsized, ominous uh, catastrophes to go on riding the subways to work and trying to 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 live your life as if um, everything were ordinary. And so this this feeling that that you know contemporary life was being uh, overtaken by inconceivable and 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 indescribable events like global warming uh, I thought if I brought it home in the form of these animals that were sort of creeping into New York City maybe I could make it make it a both funnier and and stranger and and more intimate I wanted to try to make the idea of distant catastrophe uh, intimate for these characters so the tiger is that the tiger is you know what we think about when we're not thinking about global warming basically um, or or you know, distant wars. One thing that, that one aspect of this book that might lend itself to its title is the vast amounts of marijuana the characters smoke. If this were, this, if you approach this book as a, a drinking game, every time somebody lights up and take a drink, <laughs> you're not going to get very far. You're not going to be driving home yeah, for no. tonight. For that, You'll for be sure. in the fridge on page... <laughs> 70. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, Perkis in particular is a kind of, um, uh, he's more than a pothead. He's, he sees it as a kind of um, mode of inquiry. I mean, and, and in many ways, I, I, I like the idea of uh, marijuana-fueled insights for these characters because it seemed in a way so poignant. It, it describes that feeling that, that one can have of having some urgent insight some some sense that uh, the world is not as we've been told that there's there's a uh, a veil of illusion that needs to be stripped away and if only we could express this or communicate this to someone else uh, then we'd you know we'd get somewhere but just as we're about to articulate these feelings we start to feel kind of groggy and hungry and you know the next thing we know it's the morning after and our mouth feels like a you know a dried out sponge and this is the human condition in a way to to live with uh, inklings, ideas, suspicions that things are not exactly as they seem, that all is not completely well with the world. If only we could find some way to describe the, the problem, we might get somewhere. But no one ever does. We all retreat into uh, our, our routines and our denials. And so um, the, the marijuana, in a way, almost functions as a kind of um, very brief and fragile form of critical theory in this book. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's Freudianism or Marxism or, or, or some other, uh, you know, um, bold insight that seems to strip the veneer of reality away briefly, but then somehow it doesn't work the next day. It's, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're back where you started living, living your life. Well, one of the things I think you do very well in this book is advance this idea of worlds within worlds. It becomes more intricate as the novel goes along <clears throat> and more and both clearer and a little bit more frightening as we realize that we all live in our own individual worlds and, and these things can just come apart without our even intervention. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a very human thing. I, 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 I think 
you know, we edit consciousness in order to cope. And I, you know, thinking about New York as a city, it's a chaotic, overwhelming, impossible uh, place. You can't live in New York City. You live in a neighborhood. You have, you know, your little circuit. You have the bagel place where you go, and you have the bar you might end up at night, and then you have your apartment and the the the, the people that you see. You make a, a tolerable, uh, you know, microcosmic reality for yourself. Everyone does this. Uh, it's not that different from the way uh, we tolerate the chaos and intricacy of, say, the internet. You know, you have your like five bookmarks, and you go every day, and you see what they're saying on Salon or, or you know, um, or whatever your preferred blog is, and then you check your email, and you check your Facebook page, and then you turn it off because if you really contemplated the vast chaos of the web, your 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 brain would explode. So the question then becomes, if one day the rest of the internet went away, quietly disappeared, and only all, all that were there were the five bookmarks that you went to, how many weeks would it take you to even know the difference? <laughs> I like this. One of the things you do very well is to um, use the virtual world to look at, rather than um, taking a, a kind of a typical science fiction approach of the virtual world is that people get lost in the virtual world, you create the virtual world and then use it as a mirror to to right. to show how it ex- reflects our own anxieties. We don't need no stinking computers. We're already, <laughs> we were already there. lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, this this is how I felt about Manhattan before I knew what the idea of a virtual reality was. Growing up in Brooklyn, my sense of Manhattan was that it was like a a self-enclosed kind of solipsistic virtual reality in many ways, yet it was also real. And that's, you know, uh, that's what's complicated is the interpenetration of fantasy and projection with, you know, into the, the, the real life of our bodies moving through time and space. The way that life is both a cartoon and a reality, and we're forced to uh, accept this this doubleness. You know, it's it's not resolvable. And I think that also this book makes a really nice pairing with the Fortress of Solitude, and I think it speaks to exactly that kind of dualism because the even the to, the tone uh, of the Fortress of Solitude was was I think uh, elegiac. I mean, you could... that's a perfect word for it. It's it's yeah, it's a attempt to reconstruct a lost world mm-hmm. uh, very much. I wanted to, in Fortress, I wanted to write about, you know, a certain block of uh, of a certain street in Brooklyn on a certain summer day in 1971 and, and somehow not only put my own mind back on that street, but bring my readers with me. Um, this book is about the, the, the experience of a kind of amnesiac present where mm-hmm. those kinds of elegies are, you know, um, just passing notions. There, there's no way to dwell in the past <laughs> in Chronic City. Well, I, I love this where um, you uh, some somebody refers to Chase as being the ultimate amnesiac American who just doesn't know anything except for what he sees. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, America itself is a relentlessly um, forward-looking mm-hmm. place. The whole concept. I mean, you know, we... We're the only country, or or one of the only countries, I guess Israel might count, that that, that are conceptually based. 
<laughs> you know, we're like a science fiction novel. Uh -huh. We're really strong on like big, bold ideas and um, and 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 possibilities for the future, and we're kind of thin on on like characterization and backstory. You know, like that stuff is really kind of tissue paper thin for us, and that's you know, th that's why we're great at 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 creating all sorts of possibilities and also. Uh, creating all sorts of destruction and 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 uh, and and contradiction because we're we're sort of like a concept generating nation, um, and uh, it, you know it was a place built by people who wanted to leave the 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 past behind, which is imp impossible. But um, the the concept is very powerful. Well, I, I presume that you, like me, in 1971, were thinking that in this year, 2009, it would be this almost unimaginably different future, yeah. something like, you know, a cross <laughs> between 2001 and Logan's Run. Yeah. And here we are. It's, it's so much more like 1971 than we really wanted it to be. Well, this is, you know, if I have like one one big idea that I've been chasing in a funny way from the very start of my work, it's that the the future doesn't arrive and replace the past. It just piles up alongside it, you know. The same way, I mean, I lived in the, I lived in Berkeley, through the Great Bay Area uh, virtual reality boom of the '80s. When any minute we were not only going to stop, you know, reading books or looking at television ever again, but we were going to like stop having sex with human bodies because it was all just about to be replaced with this really amazing new thing that we would, we would never glance backward. Well, you know, instead we go to eBay and we like write a lot of letters to each other on email and. And 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 what's more, we you know here we are. You and I are talking about a, a book bound in you know, in uh, in in uh, cardboard. And uh, thank God, there's there's there are fax machines alongside our computers and our televisions still, you know, you know, still work. And so it's just sort of like all the stuff, all the half um, fulfilled futures stack up next to each other and corrode and become. Uh, some sort of weird, uh, you know, cousins. Yeah, the future. The problem with the future is that it doesn't go away fast enough. It, it arrives. <laughs> I, I I got a great TV set ten years ago, and the damn thing still won't die, so I can't get another one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the things that that you you talk about too, I think, is that uh, there's there's in this yet another world, you create this kind of interesting vision of. Uh, virtual reality talk about you know um creating something you, you had to know you know second life and the sims i, and I stuff. barely know that stuff actually i've just i've just sort of read about it uh -huh. i don't well, have a lot of patience for it myself <laughs> but i like i like reading descriptions of of how it you know changes people's experience and doesn't you know in one of the primary things that seems to happen in virtual reality is um you know people buy and sell stuff and fall in love and get mad at each other and form gangs and, you know, bully other people. It's it's amazingly like uh, the original. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a really interesting observation. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's kind of like on the original, only maybe worse in some ways. <laughs> uh, you do mention something. Uh, one of the things I think that is uh, also this in this book a lot is uh, you have a kind of a platonic worldview uh, of there being 
you know, these platonic uh, perfection, you know, the, of which everything is a shadow. And I love the idea of the platonic pastrami sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I have to tell you, it's actually, you get it in, in Wasco. It's, out, it's at, oh, yeah. at Carol's. Let's pastrami. go. Let's go right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think I, that image has been a very, you know, Plato's cave and the idea of, you know, ideal forms, but we're only in able to grasp their shadows or their decaying versions. It's been a ter- terrifically influential idea for me, so I'm not surprised you see it all through this 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 book. And, you know, I mean, I think this is also a book about people's relationship to cultural stuff, to books and CDs and songs and, you know, and streets and stores and, and just, you know, what it is to live in a world piled up with human artifacts and to to be passionate about them but also impatient with them and you know to decide that you're going to be a critic or a connoisseur or a collector and judge them or try to improve them you know it's it's i mean that's what a city is it's it's living in this kind of calamitous pile of you know human made stuff and trying to sort through it and make make it useful or or tolerable to yourself um now one of the uh, objects of affection in this book is something that's called a children. Now, <laughs> I have to say, I went and looked you up had a child. You had to go there. You I had to do it. <laughs> I I looked it up, and, and a children is a is a measure of weight. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a kind of archaic um, unit of like uh, coal energy, coal mm. coal derived energy, or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I just wanted the word to to uh, to speak of um, some unknowable. Uh, you know, powerful object that that would be permanently unattainable. So it 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 felt right. It, it does feel right. Yeah. That's one of the things that's that that's interesting about it is that when you say that word, I know exactly what you're talking about. We we see it right there. Well, it it I mean, it partly it's like a Lewis Carroll Jabberwocky word. It splits the difference between a chalice and a cauldron. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of think about both a chalice and a cauldron at once, you've got a very evocative slightly horrible you know um, vase in front of you so that's so well that's that's kind of what I thought too I thought oh children it's, yeah. it's a it's a it's a chalice in a cauldron boiling yeah. over with with potential now um you also I have to say I, I was thrilled to see uh, your recollections of the Vonnegut editions of the 1970s right. Vonnegut editions yeah those are those are, are are indelible on my on my mind and, and apparently on yours. And I think that you share a lot of his sensibility uh, of the way that you approach what might be called science fiction, but really I don't think is. He was very important writer to me uh, when I was a teenager. He, you know, I mean, I devoured those books and um, and and reread certain of them again and again. Um, he, it's what's funny is I find it very hard now to reread Vonnegut. So the influence has become uh, deeply subliminal for me because I don't contend with him the way I do some of my other favorites that have, you know, um, that have stayed approachable for me. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if if you felt uh, felt his presence in this book, uh, this one particularly. Now, um... the uh, you know I think mm-hmm. I'm going to. Just just take that one step further and say the book of his that I probably cared for the most uh, was Cat's Cradle. And My, Cat's Cradle, mine too. I love that book. This is, you know, I mean, it's probably no accident that 
his world ends in ice. And, and I've written a book where, uh, you know, instead of global warming, what seems to be happening is, is that we're headed for the deep freeze. A, a deep freeze aided by your local delivery, uh, your, your local marijuana delivery <laughs> man. And this is something that, that I think is unique to you, you New York. I, I guess they, this is act they do. You can have marijuana delivered to your door in New York. I, I, I'm told this by David I know Sedaris. nothing about this. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, an- another thing that you do, a uh, cultural icon that you pull out and use very well, is, is Marlon Brando. And for the first part of this book, I'm thinking, wait, wait, Brando's dead, isn't he? Maybe he's not. And so, again, I'm looking, and then I'm thinking, is this really our New York? So I'm wondering, as a writer, you almost make us doubt that the reality is is real, and I think that's that's something that you that you're very interested in. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brando Brando became. Um a uh, a kind of totem for this book because he's he, you know he represents this sort of inexpressible resistance to the scripts we're handed you know he's he, he stopped wanting to be Marlon Brando and and even within his films when he would consent to be in one he would always uh in his performance show you his contempt for what he was doing or his it, he was like a dissident element within the the script. He he was trying to stand apart from it or say something other than what he was meant to be uh, expressing in the role. And for the characters in this book who are, in a way, looking for ways to express an inexpressible resistance to a daily life, a script that's that's been handed to them that they don't accept, that feels bogus to them. So he's, you know, he's sort of their champion in a way. He's the, he's the guy who's you know, however costly it was, and it was obviously uh, disastrous for him, he found a way to to fight the script. Yeah, he always wanted to seem to, like, throw you out of the movie. Yeah. Now, um, this is a very funny book. It's quite... Thank you. You have to have a great hand for humor, and there are just tons of really stunningly bitching sentences in here. So talk about, I mean, when you're uh, writing along, how, how how often do you have to go back and polish those sentences and, and talk about your your sense of kind of comic timing here? Because you keep us, we have to care about these people in order to be able to laugh about them. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for, for what you've said. I want it to be a very funny book. And, you know, it ends up, and I end up in conversations sometimes about it now that, f- that where I feel that that it, it's coming across as quite ponderous or or you know uh, heavy with ideas but a lot of it is this kind of chaotic set pieces where the characters are just um, getting in in stupid trouble mm-hmm. and and you know stumbling over each other's feet as they you know try to um, tr- try to repair the damage I do think of it as a, a kind of a a morbid sitcom in a way. Um, the voice was a very fortunate one for me. I think more than in any other book, uh, apart from Motherless Brooklyn, when I invented Chase's voice, I found that it could say and and express so much of what I what I felt. So the 
the sentences, you know, this is this is written in the first person. It goes straight through. It's not like Fortress where there are different narrative strategies uh, that the book adopts at different points. And and I did revise it and I worked very hard on it, but I was also more than anything else, I settled into that voice and I let it carry me. Um, as I say, nothing except Motherless Brooklyn felt quite that way for me as a, as a writer. Um, the the you know the time I spent with Chase felt in a in a way like I was listening as much as writing. Now this book is kind of I think uh, has a in a sense a conversation with the Fortress of, of Solitude, and and I'm wondering if as a writer you are going to continue that conversation or. Well. I do have another fairly grandiose New York book in mind, which uh, even extends my my nefarious reach to another borough. I'm, I'm going to write about Queens in this next one. So it sounds like a project, doesn't it? Uh, although I, <laughs> I, I, I'm dead certain that I'll never have anything uh, useful to say about Staten Island. So 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 much for 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 the you know the. Uh, the five corner shot there, but um, but you know I I I grew up loving uh, short tight books and loving big uh, encompassing crazy you know engulfing kind of books, but I didn't know how to do the latter for a long time. So I wrote for a while. I wrote kind of you know clean tight uh, neat little two hundred and forty page books until I figured out what what it would be for me what it how how I could uh try to reply to you know uh Dickens or or you know a book like James Baldwin's Another Country or you know or um you know DeLillo's uh uh Underworld in in my own way uh try to write something that was kind of encompassing and and contradictory and crazy books like that become worlds you know, mm-hmm. you enter them and you can't see their whole shape from within. They're too they're too big and complicated. So I have another one of those sort of hatching, um, and it's another New York book. I don't know uh, how how it will look in relation to Fortress or or Chronic City, but but um, but I'm excited to do it. That sounds like a lot of fun. Now, uh, are you also working on another short, sharp shock somewhere in there? Uh, I don't have another one of those on on my on my desk right now. No, I mean, I, ex- except in that I've been writing short stories recently. Mm-hmm. I've had a couple of them just come out, in, one in Harper's, and one in the New Yorker that I'm very pleased with. I mean, uh, so uh, some of that that energy is still reserved for the short fiction. And I don't mean I'll never write another short novel. I just what I've got in mind next is this next uh, kind of big, big crazy one. Now, it interested me, too, that you uh, sold the Janice uh, Trumbull letters to The New Yorker instead of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Granted, The New Yorker has a better profile and probably pays a whole hell of a lot better than the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. But as a guy who, like, clearly understands the tropes of science fiction and enjoys them, could you talk about being, you know, you're kind of an outlier on both uh, edges of, of, you know, literature and science fiction. Talk about yeah. how living in that space as a writer. Well, I mean, if I thought about it as a, as a, you know, role, I would probably get very uh, self-important. I, I don't do 
what I do out of uh, a desire to 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 um, carve out a, a role. I I I'm, I do it out of a kind of passionate uh, curiosity and mm-hmm. a sense of of engagement. I'm writing about stuff I love. It seems like necessary <laughs> when I when I when I put you know things that some people and I I I should say I disagree with those people think are kind of paraliterary or subliterary into my books, whether we're talking about, you know, movie stuff like the Westerns that fueled uh, Girl and Landscape or rock and roll or comic books or science fiction in its, you know, traditional pulp image, which anyway, it's outgrown. It's long since outgrown that. There's a, a, a fantastic tradition of very consummate, very self-possessed, very grown-up kinds of writers who work inside that genre now. It's mm-hmm. not really a pulp form anyway, any anymore. But when I put these kind of vernacular cultural things into my work, it's just because that's my world. That's what I'm responsive to. Uh, it's it's no more complicated than that. It's not it's not like a, a political position. Well, it's clear that no matter what what it is, you're having a great deal of fun with Chronic City. It's really well, thank you. It's really a hoot to read this book. I've been speaking with Jonathan Leatham. His latest book is Chronic City. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.